Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'm speaking with Marius Hentia, the author of Tata Dada, The Real Life and Celestial Adventures of Tristan Zara. Marius Hentia, a Romanian-born literary scholar, teaches in the Department of Literary Studies at Ghent University. He's the author of Henry Green at the Limits of Modernism. Marius Hentia, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Well, thanks very much for having me. So since this is a biography of Tristan Zara, it might help to get a brief physical description of him. Had we met him, I guess, at the height of his powers, what are some things you would have noticed about him? Well, I think it's an important question, and, and it's really good that we start there, because in some way, I mean, Zara played with his physical appearance throughout his career, and he really made himself a kind of object to be looked at. So in these kind of data manifestos, you have moments where he says, you know, regarde-moi, gentil bourgeois, look at me, a very kind bourgeois. He wanted to be looked at, and he understood that just, just the fact that he was there being looked at meant something to the audience. So when, when he was unveiled in Paris, for instance, um, he didn't really want to speak. He just wanted to be on stage, and he thought that that would just provoke enough of a shock more than anything that he said. So he's very conscious of the kind of physical appearance that he has. But then when we ask what that physical appearance is, I guess it depends who's looking at him. Right, so Tsara himself, I began my book by quoting a kind of mock birth certificate that he wrote in 1922, and he describes himself as having 63 kilos, straight nose, short black hair, round face, broad forehead, distinguishing sign, four ears. And then he concludes that by giving his height, which is a meter 90, which is about six feet. And that physical description is wildly off. He was, I mean, the first thing you could say about Tsara's physical description is that he was very, very short. <laughs> And he was slight, so he wasn't physically imposing in any way. But he used that to his advantage once he sort of started all the Dada stuff. So on the Cabaret Voltaire, Hugo Ball used to say, you know, look at this kid, right? He looks so sweet. He looks so innocent. It looks like his parents are just sending him care parcels in the post, right? So Tsara would be, you know, insulting the audience, doing whatever else. But because it came from such a small body, uh, it seemed somehow not so, not so intimidating, the other thing that, obviously, when people think about Tristan Sara is they think about his monocle, this kind of famous monocle that he ported. And Sara did that to draw attention to himself, but a lot of the avant-garde at the time was doing those kinds of things. So these are the kind of physical descriptions, but then there's the fact that his physical description was read by others in the sense that there are two really important moments, I think, in the history of Dada where Sara's physical appearance comes to the fore. The first is when he goes, when he goes to the first, the opening night of the Cabaret Voltaire, and he's there with some Romanian friends, and they introduce themselves to Hugo Ball, who's the founder of the Cabaret Voltaire. And Ball writes in his diary that this kind of oriental-looking deputation came up to introduce themselves to him. And this happens again when he first goes to Paris in 1920, and he sort of meets Andre Breton and Louis Aragon and these other guys at Francis Picabia's apartment, and Aragon had gone there thinking Tsara was going to be this kind of second messiah. He was going to like revitalize Western culture. And then he, when he describes that encounter of that first night, Aragon is like, he's a small myope who's very Japanese-looking. So in some sense, the question of Tsara being a foreigner crops up really importantly just in the kind of physical appearance that he has. So in that answer, you talked about his Romanian background. He had a unique upbringing in Romania in that Although Romania certainly at the turn of the 20th century wasn't, uh, I think anybody would say, you know, a, an impressive metropole as far as culture goes, he seemed to be a, a pretty, come from a pretty bourgeois background, but from a pretty 
rural place. Could you talk about that that odd, I guess, and also the fact that he was Jewish? I mean, so he had really he really had a lot. He had a very interesting background from Romania. I was wondering if you could talk about how that affected his early years. Yeah, I mean, Saru, I mean, he was born in Romania. His first language was Romanian. He was educated in Romania. He went to high school and university in Romania. His first poetry, all the kind of first cultural stuff that he does is in Romanian, yet he was a cultural outsider uh, in some ways, I think because of the fact that he was Jewish, right? So uh, Jews weren't granted citizenship in Romania until after World War II, or after World War I, sorry, in about 1923. So Tsara was effectively stateless uh, because of the fact that he was Jewish. And Jews were singled out in Romania because essentially um, there was a huge influx of Jews that came to the country in the 19th century, most of them settled in cities. Some of the cities in northeast Romania were about 50% Jewish, and that was the case for Tsara. So in the city where he grew up or where he was born, it's a city called Moinesht, which is in northeast Romania. It's sort of on a mountaintop. Uh, and it was a really weird place because oil was discovered there in the 1840s, 1850s. So there's huge oil exploitation. Um, yet half the city was full of Orthodox Jews, <laughs> You have these kind of, you have these Orthodox Jews studying the Torah and with payots and all of this, and then you have these kind of Wild West prospectors trying to get rich on oil. Uh, and Sara didn't fit, obviously, into either group. So his father was, was Jewish, but an atheist. So when he actually became a Romanian citizen, Sara's father wrote on his passport, I am an atheist, uh, for his religion. So he didn't have a natural connection to the Jews in the city. And obviously he was marked out as separate from the Romanians that were there. Um, and being Romanian, and, but not really being Romanian, and being Jewish, but not really being Jewish because the family wasn't religious, that sort of marked Tsara apart in a kind of way. It impacted him, I think, in a couple of ways. Firstly, obviously, when his, his early education, he, had to, he went to Jewish schools, and then he went to kind of Romanian language uh, or kind of Roma Romanian heavy schools where he was essentially the only Jew or one of the few Jews that were there. Uh, so that's one thing. But then more importantly, and what we're interested in, I think when we think about Sara is the kind of, let's say, poetic or literary impact. And I think this was important because at the time in Romania you had lots and lots of folks who were just very openly anti-Semitic. And it wasn't just the, the mass of the population, but essentially the leading intellectuals in the country you know, could write things like, you know, all of the, Drew, all of the Jews should drown in the river. Uh, all of the Jews have to get out of the country. Eliminating the Jews from Romania, that's like the most important thing that we have to do. So there's a widespread anti-Semitism, and that sort of forced Tsara in some way to realize that I think art and politics were, not, were, were welded together from the start. Right. So somehow in Western Europe, there's this idea that art can be autonomous, can just be pure aesthetics. That was the kind of dominant aesthetic at the time. And oddly enough, Romania imported this kind of aesthetic, but because most of the folks in Romanian culture who were innovative were Jewish, um, they sort of transformed those kind of essentially sterile forms into something much more political. So I think it had a longer impact, I think, on his Dada career. You know, uh, 
he obviously had some degree of literary success as a young man in, when he was in Bucharest, but he really didn't get it noticed internationally until they moved to Zurich. Now, I knew a little bit about Dadaism because very early on at the MIT Press, I did a book on Francis Picabia. But one of the things I never really got into, I still kind of find very interesting, is the whole idea of Cabaret Voltaire, this artistic hotbed where really the beginnings of Dada was forged, was in Geneva. In, no, Zurich, sorry, Zurich. And Zurich is not normally the first town that one automatically thinks of with avant-garde art. So why Zurich? Saar so sort of stumbled upon Zurich. I mean, in some sense, it is, he wrote a kind of faux memoir, very fictionalized memoir, uh, in which he sort of says, well, you know, I sort of arrived in Zurich by chance. I sort of got off the train. I met an old friend. He showed me around. Conveniently, he shows him around to where the Cabaret Voltaire ends up being. Uh, and I decided to stay. Like, I don't think there's, I don't think Tsara just ended up in Zurich by chance. He was sort of sent there. And he was sent there by his parents because they wanted to make sure that he wouldn't get drafted into the Romanian army. Uh, Romania didn't join the war until 1916. Tsara was sent to Zurich in 1915. Uh, but pretty much everybody in Romania knew that, you know, they would end up, uh, that the country would join, join in the war. And, you know, one of the cruelties of being Jewish in Romania was that you couldn't be a citizen, but you could be called up to the army. So his parents, obviously, I think, wanted to save his bacon. Um, you know, wanted to make sure that you know the, the young son didn't join the army and fight for a country that he wasn't even a citizen of. The other thing I think the parents sent him there was they thought, well, you know, our son is just doing all this literature stuff. Let's send him to Zurich, <laughs> right? This kind of place where he won't be tempted to do uh, to get involved in literature and all of this. Of course, you know, the irony was that lots of other well-meaning parents across Europe thought the same thing. So essentially, Zurich during World War One just hosted a whole number of you know people from Germany, from the from from uh, from Russia, from Yugoslavia who were there to avoid the war, and they were all young men, or they were war deserters, people who had been in the army and then uh, were wounded and wanted to get out and didn't want to serve for their country anymore. Uh, so you had lots of young men in Zurich at the time who were foreigners there, and they were attracted to the place because. Switzerland was a neutral country, so they could say pretty much whatever they wanted there. So in their own countries, they would have to be censored, or the newspapers were censored, or there was a, a very dominant nationalistic feeling, whereas that wasn't the case in Switzerland. Uh, so you had the ability in Zurich, I think, to, to create a kind of cultural space with your fellow disaffected youth. So they found a community of foreigners that, that made art happen uh, against a kind of placid, I mean, in some sense, kind of placid public that didn't really care for them. Tsar is considered one of the founders of Dadaism, a school of thought that really under his and tries to find categorization. Apart from his poetry, he was a pretty indefatigable organizer and proselytizer of Dadaism. But was anybody ever able to come up with what a way, able to explain Dadaism in a definitive way, or is it one of those things that everybody looks at it their own way and kind of thinks they know what it is, but no one can say exactly what it is? The simple answer is no. Right, so there's no, there's no easy way to categorize what Dada is. And every Dada manifesto that you, that you read lists what Dada is, but then it goes on to list what Dada isn't. And then, as Tara once put it, you know, the true Dadas are actually anti-Dadas. So, I mean, in some sense, everybody gets from it what they want. Um, and I think Tsara knew this from the start, or he sort of had a sense that the word itself was more important than the content that it expressed, right? And he wanted to distinguish 
I think, data from other avant-garde movements. He took a lot from futurism. And futurism was the other big avant-garde movement that was, uh, that was popular throughout Europe. Tsar knew a bit about it from, from his time in Romania. Uh, but then when he was in, when he was in Switzerland, there were, there were a lot of contacts with Italians. Um, but futurism had to some degree a kind of ideology, a kind of, a set of common beliefs that all futurists more or less uh, sort of agreed with, and essentially the most important one, in my way of thinking, is that they understood themselves as trying to lead society forward in a certain way. So there's a kind of positive program. Uh, even if everything is crap, we're going to do something that totally shakes the foundations of the society that we live in, and we'll live in a better world. So it was utopic in a kind of way. Um, and Dada didn't believe that at all, right? I mean, so Tsara in the 1918 manifesto says, you know, every manifesto wants to impose an ABC. Uh, every manifesto, and that's as easy as one, two, three. Uh, but Dada didn't have an ABC to impose. It didn't have any kind of answers. And it sort of, it took power from the fact that it was inert in this way, that it didn't, it, it couldn't change society. Uh, what it could change was the kind of fun you had living and your sense of being alive. Uh, so what Dada wanted to do more than anything else was to essentially to celebrate spontaneity, right? To make everything, which is art, closely allied to life, right? To not separate uh, the two. The other thing which perhaps is important to mention is that Dada started as a kind of money-making venture, right? Hugo Ball sets up this cabaret because he wants to be independent. He wants to be independent aesthetically, artistically, because uh, he had been touring around these kind of crummy cabarets that were doing really uh, stereotypical things, uh, and he didn't much like that. Uh, but he wanted to be independent financially. So in some sense, the cabaret had to draw an audience. And it drew an audience by shocking them, by making them laugh, by making them participate in what they were doing. Uh, so it forced, in some sense, the Dadaists to perform in front of a public. And this kind of performative aspect of Dada is really, really important. And we don't have access to that anymore. Right? We don't know what it was like to actually be at the Cabaret Voltaire. Um, but that's where true Dada lived. Now... I think it's fair to say that Zara is not that well-known in the Anglophone world. As a matter of fact, this is, yours is the first English-language biography of Tristan Zara. So people may not know his, I want to say, his reputation as a writer of poetry and also a writer of theater. So do you have a particularly favorite poem of his that might give somebody, people who have never heard of him before and might not know his work, give them a flavor of what he was like? Well, the starting point with Zara is probably his manifestos. I mean, the manifestos are where you have this kind of violent dynamism, this razor-sharp logic, you have a kind of amazing kinetic energy uh, in the manifestos. And I was drawn to Tsara because of those manifestos. I read them when I was a teenager, and they're just explosive, and they're still explosive. But Tsara always thought of himself as primarily a poet, and the kind of epitaph uh, on his tomb in Paris in the Dalachaise Cemetery just says, Poet. For general advice for readers, I think you start with the manifestos, and then the kind of poetic masterpiece is a poem called Approximate Man, uh, which is quite long, but it's an amazing poem. It has lots of layers of complexity, uh, and it brings out these kind of intimate connections that humanity, all of us, have to the natural world. So I have, some, I, I have here the kind of opening lines, which I'll read first in French, maybe, and then I'll sort of do a quick translation. C'est dimanche lourd couvercle sur le bouillonnement du sang. 
hebdomadaire poids accroupi sur ses muscles, tombé à l'intérieur de soi-même retrouvé, les cloches sont sans raison et nous aussi. Sur les cloches sans raison et nous aussi, nous nous réjouirons au bruit des chaînes qui nous feront sonner et nous avec les cloches. And the translation by Marianne Cause sort of reads, Sunday, heavy lid on the seating of blood, weekly weight crouched on its haunches, fallen inside, oneself found again. The bells ring for no reason, and we too, we will rejoice at the clank of chains that we will sound within us with the bells. And I think you hear the difference. I mean, the, in translation, a lot of the incantatory quality of calling out for the bells to ring out is sort of lost. The communal emphasis on nu, on we, is also minimized. But approximate man takes the reader on so many levels, and it shows a kind of poetic vulnerability as well. So I think it's the, it's the kind of starting point in some ways. Maria Santia, the author of Tata Dada, of The Real Life and Celestial Adventures of Tristan Zara. Thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are, at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2014, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.